Welcome to the 306th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I'm joined by Sharon Weinberger, national security writer and Washington bureau chief for Yahoo News. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 7th, 2021, there are 3,995,703 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The United States is now reporting 605,932 deaths from COVID-19. Germany reports 91,118 deaths from the disease and Russia is reporting 137,005 deaths from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is CIA psychological profiler who labeled Trump dangerous dies of COVID at 86. This was written by Sidney Trent and appeared in the Washington Post December 5th. 2020. As a pioneering psychological profiler for the Central Intelligence Agency and later as a consultant, Gerald M. Post plumbed the lives, leadership styles, and at times the mental illness of foreign heads around the globe. Over decades, his expertise and instincts were greatly in demand, especially at the White House. The Yale and Harvard-trained psychiatrist advised former President Jimmy Carter about how best to negotiate with Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat before the Camp David peace accords. He explained Sadat's Nobel Prize complex, his desire to be remembered as a great leader, and Begin's biblical preoccupation and obsession with detail. Post warned about labeling Saddam Hussein simply as the madman of the Middle East, lest it mislead political leaders into thinking Hussein was unpredictable, when in fact he was not. As an expert in the psychology of terrorism, Post produced psychological profiles of suicide bombers in Israel and opined on the corporate leadership style of al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. And yet in late 2019, a year before his death, on November 22nd of COVID-19 at the age of 86, Post found himself doing it what at one point would have been unthinkable, publishing a book about the alarming psychological makeup of an American president. In writing Dangerous Charisma, the Political Psychology of Donald Trump and His Followers, Post risked violating the American Psychiatric Association's Goldwater Rule, which forbids the diagnosis of public figures without full evaluation and consent. He was a life fellow of the APA, but he said if they kicked him out, he didn't care, said his wife, Carolyn Post. He felt it was that important and that psychiatrists have a duty to warn. By then, Post had a, had a storied two-decade career as founding. Let me try that again. By then, Post had had a storied two-decade career as founding director 
of the CIA's Center for the Analysis of Personality and Political Behavior. He then used his expertise to found Political Psychology Associates, the research and consulting firm that specialized in industrial espionage, counterterrorism, and leadership assessment. All along, he lectured as a professor at George Washington University, wrote 14 books, and continued to see patients in a private practice he ran out of the basement of his Bethesda home. His career success, as family said, was a reflection of an insatiable roving curiosity and a probing empathy for his fellow humans, qualities that also made him a highly engaging friend and a nurturing husband, father, and doctor. He always wanted to know, what are the people about and what is their world, said Cindy, 58, his daughter, a clinical psychologist in Silver Spring. Her father was kind of a whirling dervish. He was the kind of person who would think there are 24 hours in a day, can we fill 23 of them? Post was born in 1934 in New Haven, Connecticut. His father sold movies to theaters and his mother worked as a bookkeeper, taught painting, and made and sold pottery. He put himself through nearby Yale University for his undergraduate degree and then medical school. He received his postgraduate psychiatric training at Harvard Medical School and the National Institute of Mental Health. He was also a faithful father to daughter Kirsten Davidson, 49, who's blind and intellectually disabled, greeting her in a special way every morning and signing off to her each night. At the CIA, Post was able to marry his triple passions of psychiatry, history, and politics by founding the agency's Center for the Analysis of Personality and Political Behavior. The work of the Center, an interdisciplinary behavioral sciences unit that assessed foreign leaders for the president and other senior officials, was groundbreaking, said Nicholas Tujmovic, a longtime CIA historian who retired from the agency in 2016. Post made it obvious through his work that we need to have professionals involved in assessing the health and psychology of foreign leaders, said Dujmovic, who was an editor of the president's daily briefings at the CIA. He said he frequently encountered Post's legacy in briefing contributions. In his last effort to psychologically profile a leader, Post trained his expertise on Donald Trump. In Dangerous Charisma, co-authored with Stephanie Doucette, Post described Trump as a destructive, charismatic leader with the traits of a classic narcissist such as grandiosity, lack of empathy, hypersensitivity to criticism, and no constraints of conscience. But Post also probed Trump's symbiotic relationship with his followers and theirs with him. Were he to lose the election, Post said a year ago, I think we can be assured that he will not concede early. Trump may not even recognize the legitimacy of the election. After the book's publication, Post's health took a downward turn. His kidneys had already been failing forcing him to go for dialysis several times a week when he suffered a stroke in July. After several months in a rehabilitation facility, he spent his final weeks of life surrounded by family at home, and on Sunday, November 15th, he began having trouble breathing. Carolyn called 911, and an ambulance rushed him to the hospital where he tested positive for the coronavirus, and he died exactly one week later. Visiting with her father in his waning days, Cindy Post said, she tried to help him consider the fullness of his restless life and find peace with the end. How do you feel about the life you had, she asked him. You've done a lot of things, you know. There's so much more to do, Post replied. But can you let this be enough, his daughter asked. He didn't answer, but Cindy said she could see the frustration written on her father's face.
I'd like to turn to conversation for today, and it's a pleasure to introduce my guest, Sharon Weinberger. Sharon Weinberger is the Washington Bureau Chief of Yahoo News and the author of The Imagineers of War, The Untold Story of DARPA, the Pentagon Agency that Changed the World, published by Knopf. She's held fellowships at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, MIT's Night Science Journalism Program, the International Reporting Program at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. Sharon's written on military science and technology for the New York Times, Washington Post, Foreign Policy Magazine, Financial Times, Wired, Nature, BBC, Discover, Slate, among many other publications. Sharon Weinberger, thanks for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Hey, it's my pleasure. I'd like to start how I usually do, just find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation, vaccination situation looks like there today. So I'm calling in from downtown Washington, D.C., where actually the news has been um, pretty good. I think something like uh, 90% of seniors have been vaccinated in D.C. I believe we've had no COVID deaths in a couple days now. Um, you know, it's 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 been very good. It was it was good even um, towards the end on just controlling the pandemic, and then with vaccination, it's it's now been quite successful here. It's remarkable to hear you say that there's been no deaths, uh, and to actually have days where that's reported. I saw that reported from Illinois too. I mean, that to yeah. me is a statistic that finally makes me sort of sit up and say there's been real progress, particularly in places where vaccination's been carried out in an effective way. Well, it's 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 real world showing the results of what high vaccination rates can do. Wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing maybe what's your strongest memory or association of this last 17 18 months of the pandemic. So, I think particularly as a journalist where I've seen I don't know, I guess I have to say like nobody has a monopoly on knowledge. I, you know, I had a number of reporters uh, who focused on China, who were telling me back in February to be prepared for this to come to the States. And, and we're giving very good reasons and, 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 and saying that we should buy masks and to prepare for this. And I have no idea on what basis I simply, you know, ignored that advice as a person. I mean, not as a journalist recognizing this was a big story. There's a tendency of, of sort of inertia to, to assume the status quo will continue the status quo. And I think my preparation was actually a friend in Hong Kong told me that about the toilet paper shortage. So I ordered an extra box of toilet paper on Amazon, not mass, but toilet paper. And I was busy trying to fit in. I, I certainly did think there was going to be a disruption in international travel. And so my response was to fit in as much travel as I could. I, I had a talk to give. I went to India, I think it was March 1st to March 9th of 2020, then planned a trip to New York the day before the shutdown. And I was in the state where I, I think it was in India, where in the course of 24 hours, and I guess this is a strong memory, where you, you could see the world change in front of you, where it doesn't happen very often, that I went from you know giving a talk and being a tourist <clears throat> to suddenly having my temperature checked, entering into the hotel, and because at that point, COVID was associated with Europeans and Americans not being allowed into sites I was going to visit and being looked at with suspicion. And then suddenly wondering, like, will I even be able to get on a plane back to the United States? And I realized I'd made these very crazy calculations 
And for the first time, not assuming that the status quo is going to continue, but seeing you know, big things were happening, but still not grasping the extent of it. I think that's my memory is, is, you know, the realization of being wrong or having made wrong judgments, even in a personal sense. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. And it's such a, that's so vivid, <laughs> that memory. And I think a lot of people get to it, that idea that something's coming, almost like preparing for a winter storm or something. That's kind of how I think I was processing it. Like, okay, well, this thing's going to happen. Not quite sure what it's going to look like. So let's get extra food. And that idea of getting a couple of trips in at the last minute without sort of imagining sort of the movement of the virus globally. I was in the same space. I didn't go to India. But what you're saying really strikes a chord with me as well. Yeah, and I have, it's, it's a mix of arrogance. I mean, that, that my concern was travel being cut off. Yeah. Not that this is a global, this is sweeping the globe and myself and many other people could get sick. That, that realization didn't really hit, I think, until I got back to the United States. Um, and I think we all, and I think what, what is unique about COVID, you know, different from 9-11, different than the Berlin Wall Fall, is it, it's, there are historical moments that everyone sees um, and many experience. But I think COVID in our lifetime, it, there, there was no one that escaped the effects of it. Um, it didn't, you know, for some, it was certainly much worse, um, fatal or lost family members, but all of us experienced it. We didn't just observe it. It's truly unique in that regard. And I, and I wonder too, you know, back to kind of what you were saying before this, this idea of, of, you know, maybe your personal travel would be cut off and things like that. I mean, I wonder how much of that presupposes the idea certainly was true for me that, We'd seen what was going on in China. It was a strong governmental response, stronger than we would have tolerated in the United States, or so we thought. But that it presupposed there'd be a strong federal response. I mean, that's kind of what I thought. Like the gears of government will kick in at the federal level, and and I couldn't have imagined that we would be by May where we were. So I guess you know, as a a real expert in readiness across domains in government, but particularly in the ones that touch on disasters and military preparedness. Were you surprised by, I, mean, what, I guess, first of all, what were you looking for in the federal response? And then were you surprised through the spring at what was going on? I mean, I think you look for what you always want to see, which is competence, you know, government agencies, you know, doing the things that we expect them to do. And, you know, I remember with Hurricane Katrina, that was like sort of another moment for me where you saw the breakdown of, of sort of government agencies doing what they're supposed to be doing when they weren't doing it or weren't doing it successfully. And that, you know, particularly coming after 9-11 was this concern, you know, maybe the federal government isn't that great about responding to some things. And, you know, when COVID hit, to see... Um, you know, I mean, there was a shutdown. I mean, it wasn't that there were no decisions made, but to see the shortfalls in, in PPE, to see, you know, the complete almost inability for quite a while to get a test, to figure out, should you get a test? How do you get to test? If you get a test, will you ever get the results? I mean, just these, these sort of massive breakdowns again of of federal agencies. And I think it was, it was quite frightening. And then when you had a, a president who was often contradicting what the 
the competent agencies were saying. And it's not that they were always right. I mean, I think those agencies also made a lot of mistakes, but to have no sort of organization. At the beginning of the pandemic, one of the reporters um, who works uh, with me was getting a lot of the internal documents coming out of Department of Homeland Security and FEMA. And those were really, especially in the initial weeks, it was like, um, I don't know how to describe it. It was like all of these little snapshots of information of you know, massive outbreaks in the meat processing plants before these were widely reported. Right. And then the inability of federal agencies to access these meat processing plants and just snapshots like uses of these like agencies calls for help. Like we don't have PPE, we have these outbreaks. And all of the reports were there, but it wasn't clear what was being done. <laughs> I think we should pause for a second and acknowledge that we have a feline uh, visitor here with us as well. And all are welcome on COVID calls, but can we introduce ourselves? Oh, yes, this is Bootsy the cat. He's a Russian blue um, and uh, very much likes to be the center of attention and somehow knows when there's a camera on. That's a good instinct, and I appreciate Bootsy joining us. So uh, just follow up on that a little bit. Um, on the military side of things, because I actually haven't talked to too many people on COVID calls about that. Were you able to track what was going on in, in terms of the military's response to COVID? I mean, talk about a something that you would think they'd be prepared for, but I wonder, there hasn't been a lot of reporting in mainstream news about how military spread around the world managed its own response. No, so what's interesting was that, yeah, what, what, and you know, the, for the military, for all its faults, the one thing it's really good at are things like responding to big things, like that, you know, they're good on logistics, they're good, you know, they're good on following orders, on giving orders. It, it was a little bit surprising, you know, and I think that most people did see those initial outbreaks on ships where, you know, on one hand, it's hard to believe that you know, ships are just as there were outbreaks on cruise ships. You have many, many people living in close quarters, uh, not really a, a, a good way to isolate them. And unlike a cruise ship, you know, these military ships have missions. They can't always just dock and you know let people off. I mean, they did do that in some cases, but there's a lot of other things you have to consider. I think what's interesting about the military response and some of the foibles is back in um uh, around 2006, 2007, there was a great interest in the federal government and in military in pandemics. Um, you know, they had in mind influenza pandemics. So there were, in fact, and one of the other reporters in our bureau wrote about these sort of, um, you know, sort of war games exercises that were done of how the military would respond to an influenza pandemic. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it's sort of interesting, I'm sure, especially for you dealing with disaster responses, it's, uh, you know, we're probably about the same age. You know, we did probably, I did tornado drills in oh, grade right. school. Oh, yeah. And didn't realize till years later, these were the same drill. They called them tornado drills, but during, you know, earlier they were civil defense drills. And in a way, that's sort of what the influenza response became. They all, like the, the, the Pentagon, they all crowded in in this exercise to cite R, the alternate Pentagon that was mm -hmm. built for nuclear war. But why on earth in a pandemic would you want to put a bunch of people together in a closed, poorly, I mean, that, a poorly ventilated facility? <laughs> 
Um, but, but that's it's like the, it's like the tornado drills. It's like oh, what, that's what we know. We know how to put our hands over our heads and hide under a desk, and that's what the Pentagon did. Um, so even though they, they were thinking about it in 2007, they weren't necessarily really well prepared for it, but at least they were thinking about it. And um, I think that's when many of the stockpile reserves for the federal government was built up. But you know, then that time passed. It's hard to keep attention on something like that. It was an interest, um, I think, of President Obama, um, and that interest faded. Um, you know, we see this with all threats and national security. That as time goes on, you think a little bit less about them. There are other concerns and other priorities. And then, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, when something does big hit, uh, we um, the military is often underprepared. I, I'm glad you drew out that history because there is a strong linkage back to September 11 that, you know, bioterrorism and biosecurity should be yeah. things that we really think about and prepare and drill for. One of the things that made a lot of sort of news through the spring last year was Trump's um, shutting down and the Trump administration's shutting down this pandemic um, preparedness unit. I And I, I've always wondered how much there was to that, like how important that were really was? Was it even a decision that he had any input on? I think John Bolton had gotten some of the blame or credit, depending on who you ask about that. Were you tracking that at all? Yeah, I was tracking it. it that is one of those really complicated issues. I did hear I did hear arguments that that was overplayed. It was less disassembling a unit than, you know, it was the same people just reassigned. Uh, you know, that was one of the hard things that I think about the journalistic coverage of the pandemic is you know, knowing what things really mattered and what things really didn't. That's one of those cases like, I'm, it made for great headlines and maybe it was true that it was to great detriment, but I, I never saw, yeah, it's certainly not great. It's not great to have, um, you know, gotten rid of this unit right before a pandemic. Did that really make any difference? I'm, I'm not so sure. Um, you know, I think that the, the bigger problem is not what was done in the run up to the pandemic, because I think regardless of what I think we were, you know, Trump certainly exaggerated with statements about how the, you know, the national stockpile, the, the cupboards were barren. I mean, that, that wasn't true. Right. But the fact is that, um, I think any administration would have gone into this pandemic underprepared based on what had gone on in the preceding years. But then what matters is what you do from there. And I think we clearly saw, um, a, you know, <laughs> some failed response at, at the beginning. And the, for beyond the beginning. And beyond the beginning, sure. One of the things I was so eager to talk to you specifically about with the pandemic was what you draw from it in terms of thinking about the national security apparatus in the United States. I mean, there's so many parts of this that we think about um, early warning and surveillance, what could be known. You were just alluding a minute ago to reports coming up from the Department of Homeland Security. So we have this really sophisticated apparatus across government to gather data, process it. We assume that means to tee up decision-making for leaders, but there's also diplomacy involved, vaccination diplomacy, the implementation of new technology. I mean, it's a pandemic story, but it's a national security story as well. So I just wanted to sort of ask you where you had found interesting places within that, that you've been thinking about reporting or that you're going to be writing about in the future. 
Um, I think about particular subjects, I think one of the things that we've learned is, you know, predicting the future is really hard. And yes, there, there were warnings that a pandemic was coming, um, just as there were warnings before September 11th. I mean, that was the point of September 11th commission, that there were all these warnings that an attack was coming. But the truth is, is that the, the, the world is full of potential things that can go wrong. And it's very hard to focus on, you know, it's easy with, in hindsight to say, if only we had seen this or done that. But what does make a difference, I do think, is, is agility, the ability to respond quickly. So even if we were, you know, vastly underprepared to deal with the pandemic, um, you have to be agile, you have to um, make decisions quickly, you know, looking at the, the shortages of PPE, you know, I could see scenarios, uh, you know, where we, we didn't have, you know, we didn't have the production facilities in the United States. Well, why? Because it was much cheaper for many years to offshore them. But is the proper answer that we should have thought a pandemic was coming and thus we need to have domestic PPE production, even though it's not profitable for many? I don't know that that would have been the right decision either. So you do have to, um, you do have to be able to respond and respond quickly. And I think those those were the failures that we saw at the beginning. In the corners of military intelligence, where you've done so many of your, you know, great reporting and and your writing and Imagineers of War, do you think, or maybe do you know, the pandemic has opened up opportunities and questions for them that are leading to new technological developments? I mean, certainly in terms of data gathering, big data visualization, and things like that, I would imagine this has been, um, well, a test of maybe some of the things they've been wargaming, but maybe an opportunity to develop new things. I mean, certainly, I don't know about the intelligence community. I mean, certainly there's a whole lot more health data collection than has probably ever taken place before. I don't know. You know, it's really hard, you know, thinking about what is the intelligence community's role with the pandemic. Um, you know, we see that in a couple of different areas, less about sort of technologies but in what they know, what they could know. So, you know, there has been reporting, including from uh, my bureau, on, you know, the intelligence community trying to see could they have gotten signs earlier from China about how bad that this was. Now we see the intelligence community involved in you know, the lab leak theory, um, which is still quite controversial. I, you know, I think the intelligence community probably doesn't quite have, and neither does the Pentagon, that the, the science base that it once had during the Cold War. And I guess I'm, I'm a little skeptical. I mean, I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong about how much they're going to be able to add to our understanding of the pandemic or the origins of the pandemic. I think the bigger thing for the intelligence community is, you know, that they're supposed to anticipate um, future threats. Uh, the CIA, I think the CIA, actually the intelligence community had, like the military back in 2007, 2008, they had been looking at, um, at global pandemics quite closely. 
But, you know, as I said with the military, you know, these things sort of come in and out of fashion based on the focus of the administration. And, um, you know, after 2008, 2009, that interest simply faded. Um, the world is full of an infinite number of threats and we have a finite amount of attention when it comes to national security. I think I'm mean, just going to speak for myself here. You know, some of those growing up in the Cold War, some of those ideas that there must be a sort of infinite amount of funds going into gathering data, science development, all that kind of stuff for good or for ill, um, often never used, I guess. Um, but that that's just out there happening. And so I think I, without even scrutinizing it, realized with this pandemic, as I guess I should have realized after Katrina, which you alluded to, that you know the failure of a federal response or a halting federal response um, it might be a window into the fact that things have just changed since the Cold War. Yeah. So, ready? yeah. so when you look at the history of sort of major inflection points when it comes to national security, um, so, you know, World War II and creation of the Manhattan Project, the launch of Sputnik and the creation of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and later the creation of NASA and the reorganization of the national security community and the emergence of the National Reconnaissance Office. All of these moves that were made in response to crises. Um, and then even you look at 9-11 and the creation of the Department of Homeland Security for better or worse. Um, there were these vast reorganizations of government. So I would ask, where is that vast reorganization of government in response to COVID-19, an event in some ways more momentous than 9-11, arguably, or but anyone can argue perhaps not, but I certainly it's it's a global pandemic is on that level, a once in century event. I, I you know, I look around. <laughs> And I don't see that reorganization, whether for better or for worse. And I think that says something about where we are as a country and the government and um, and sort of the partisan divide, more than a partisan divide, a cultural divide um, about how we respond to crises. It's so interesting. I mean, do you think that cultural divide then is a, is about dividing the world into sort of military and healthcare? Because I really think what you said just now is really thought provoking. And what would it look like? I mean, I guess at the federal level, it would look like an order of magnitude increase of budget for the health and human services to start. I mean, that would be one thing you would expect, but we're not we're not right. seeing it. Where is, what is that breakdown? Look at where we are as a country, and we had a significant. And I'm not, you know. I look at myself more as an observer of this. I mean, I have personal opinions, but we had a significant part of the country that did not look at COVID-19 as a big deal. Um, you know, whether they viewed it as, um, you know, a bad cold, the flu, that it was overblown um, and that. And when we saw the politicization, um, politicization of mask wearing, um, and I, I see, and I see it on both sides. Meaning, the people who refuse to wear masks um, because they, you know, Dr. Fauci is wrong, and he was wrong about masks initially, and this is all just about constraining your rights. But I also am critical of those who took the mask as sort of, you know, signaling, you know, who they belong to and what they believe in, rather than it's a mask. It it helps prevent the spread of COVID and also flu and cold. Um, so both sides got involved in this. 
Um, so that I think is part of the issue of the country. You know, if you don't, I think everyone agreed that 9-11 was a crisis. Um, there's a lot of disagreement over the response to it, but no one doubted that this was a, a large threat to our country. Maybe not no one, but most people, I think there was general consensus. Um, I don't see that consensus with, with COVID-19. I, I, I don't have to linger too long on Trump, but I think, I mean, in this regard, it's pretty interesting to try to put him in some historical perspective. Um, the idea of having a president of the United States basically going on the attack against science, I mean, literally against a Tony Fauci, was startling, I think, to me. And I, and I didn't really know what to make of that until I sort of, for me at least, it snapped in that this was in some part an electoral strategy, I think, to, to a certain degree. I don't know. I was surprised by the way things really took a turn late last spring and into the summer, where it seemed like you had a real breakdown in the government and the way they were even putting forward what science is for. And this was, this again comes from a government that around the world is known as promoting science, as a leader of promoting science in the world. I found that so jarring. So I would take a slightly different tact on that. I I don't think, I mean, I'm sure I, it's probably good reasons for people to disagree with me. I'm not sure that Trump was anti-science as much as, you know, he was running a show and he wanted to run the show the way he wanted. I mean, you know, as Trump himself liked to point out, he was responsible for elevating. I think most Americans had never heard of Anthony Fauci um, unless they were involved. I mean, an incredibly important figure and well-known in certain circles in Washington and people who had reported on the AIDS crisis, but not a household name. And Trump, I mean, I don't know if you should take credit for it, but he certainly did, you know, elevated him in this national role as a spokesman for science for the pandemic. And then, of course, there was this breakdown of their relationship that took place. And then, you know, Trump very much turned on him in a way that I think was shocking to many people, perhaps not people who expected as much out of Trump. Um so I don't know that it was anti-science so much as not caring about the science. Trump wanted to respond. You know, he he was confused and frustrated by this thing he couldn't change through tweets. He couldn't read for the first time. He couldn't redirect the news cycle. He couldn't say, let me tweet and you're going to look at this shiny object. It, it was still the pandemic every single day. And I think that uh, flummoxed him. <laughs> that he, he could no longer control the news cycle like he had done for several years of his presidency. Um, and so I don't think it was so much, you know, anti-science as just the way he's anti-everything that, that he couldn't control the message from, you know. And I think it's, you know, a shame on many levels, but, you know, he could have emerged as someone who uh, you know took on the pandemic and took the hard decisions that were need to be made, um, but did not do that. Yeah, it was a pretty low bar. I, I, I agree with you. I think it wouldn't have taken much, um, even maybe no no different actions, but different affect, and a lot of people would have been behind him. I, yeah. I still sort of. I mean, I think, I think the greatest shame was, you know, the, the mask wearing needn't have been a political issue. Um, that was something that that could have been embraced early on and, and would have helped. Um, 
Yeah, there were a lot of things that could have been done differently. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Sharon Weinberger today, national security expert and Washington bureau chief for Yahoo News. You, in passing a moment ago, you alluded to the lab leak uh, theory. I wanted to circle back to that again, because I think it, to me, it seems it opens up some areas where we could talk about preparedness and um, places where national security somehow overlaps with, with the pandemic. What's, I don't want to ask you, like, is it true or not? But so much, you know, just like, what is the lab leak for you? What does that sort of story open up for you in terms of trying to make sense of the pandemic in a broader context? Well, I mean, you know, at the very basic idea of it that, and if that, you know, that COVID-19 wasn't something that jumped from bats to an intermediate species to humans, but was either a virus that um, escaped from uh, a Chinese lab uh, that had been collected from the field, or that it was a virus that had not been you know, sort of genetically manipulated, but had, had gone through what's called gain of function, had been um, manipulated, changing aspects of it to see how it would spread. And in that way, uh, became, you know, jumped to humans, and then that escaped the lab. I am of, you know, I'm not an expert in pandemics, so I probably know as much as anyone who at the beginning started reading books on it. And, you know, it's, if you read books on it or talk to people, you know, there's a pandemic about every 100 years and we were at about 100 years. So it's not that unexpected that one hit. I don't know how anyone would ever prove one way or another, the origins of the pandemic, I don't think there's been a good track record of finding, you know, whether it's the patient zero. And so what it should be is a scientific question, something that should be studied. I don't think it's very effective as something to try to figure out who's, whose fault it is. I think we need to know as much about the origins of the pandemic as we can. I doubt we'll ever know exactly what happened, but maybe we'll know more that can add to our knowledge and help prevent it from happening again. But it's become so political. It was political during the Trump administration with the way that um, Trump used language calling, I mean, you know, calling it the Chinese virus, which is not helpful or, you know, worse names. Um, but it's also, there's a lot of criticism and soul searching now among journalists and others where that theory was treated as a conspiracy theory under the Trump administration by a lot of journalists because of Trump's words. But now, because the Biden administration is looking at it, now it's okay to write about. Um, you know, science, as I'm sure you know, it, it's, it's never free from politics. The idea that there's some pure science and that there's a political party on the side of goodness and right and following the science. And then there's a party that's anti, I don't believe that. Um, I think there's things that are better or worse or detrimental for science, but I, I have seen whether it's the left or the right, you know, use science when it's sort of backs up what they believe in. Um, you know, I guess I'm a little bit more cynical in that regard. No, but I think that's really, I mean, the lab leak is, is a, exposes a lot of this process that you're talking about. Yeah. And what's important is that we look at it and we look okay. at it for to encourage transparency by the Chinese government and accountability and to increase our understanding. I 
and that we, but I, I just as I'm critical that people treated it as a conspiracy theory, I'm now critical that it's, you know, in, it's not anymore. I mean, it's, it should be above those things, but it, it's not. I guess I wonder, maybe you can, you know, help parse this or translate a little bit, but when the announcement was made that the Biden administration was now looking at it as, in a sort of a national security sense, um, not just the scientific sense, but that it, you know, this sort of gain of function research could be there. It sort of snaps into a different mode. And again, the sort of helpful cultural divide that you were alluding to a minute ago, that we seem to be quite good in the United States at thinking about war and security. Maybe it's not so clear how we react to something if it's focused on health. I'm curious, what does it mean when they say they're going to look at a at a lab in China from a national security perspective, it it's a different a different agencies involved. It's a different sort of briefing to the president. I don't really know what to well, make. Well, for of sure. That. I mean, our you know our intelligence community has access to things like signal intercepts. They you know phone communications, email. You know, we 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 do. We have built up a lot of capabilities to. Um, I mean, beyond science. I mean, the intelligence community also has access to scientists, and they do still have scientists employed in these agencies. But they have access to lots of other information that, you know, a CDC or an IH or whomever doesn't have access to. So I can certainly see um, the, the use of that and the reasons for having the intelligence community involved. I'm doubtful that, uh, I mean, I'm sure it will add some information um, but the truth is, is that the Chinese government may well not know where the virus came from, probably does not. I think we tend to assume that authoritarian governments or autocratic governments are all knowing, but actually they tend to be the opposite mm. um, because there's such a resistance, you know, in a un non-democratic society, you don't want to be the scientist who suffers the consequences of reporting that something went wrong. And so information often does not, it bottlenecks at the very bottom. And so these governments often know much less <laughs> than what other governments might know about things that happen on, on, on the ground. That's fascinating insight. Why do you think that we revert to an idea that authoritarian societies are all-knowing. I mean, that's been sort of presumed throughout, and I would say you're right in this regard. Both Republicans and Democrats have said things that are tantamount to, to Chinese government knows what's going on, but they're not telling us. But that could very well not be the case. I think some of that is just the, the popular idea of George Orwell in 1984—that Big Brother sees everything, which, which was, which was yeah, yeah, one sure. issue of, of authoritarian governments or totalitarian governments. Um, but in fact, you know, I don't think that Orwell was trying to break down all the elements of a uh, of what a totalitarian government would look like. He was focusing on one issue: real governments, autocratic, authoritarian, totalitarian are um, complex. China is probably much more complex than many others. And when you look at different areas, I have a colleague, James Palmer at Foreign Policy, who wrote a good essay about this, uh, titled something like, you know, we don't know anything about China, which sounds like a very simple idea. What he talks about is all of these figures we have on the GDP, on education, on literacy. We don't know if any of them are true because we know that um, that the numbers being given to the central government in China, everyone is motivated by something else. You know, it's it's, it's you know, it's like the, the 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 archives for the Soviet Union. 
everybody was lying. They were lying to Stalin about how many people they shot. You know, they were lying about how much grain they confiscated. Everything was a lie. And so trying to figure out the real picture is, is challenging. And I think that is uh, part of what we may see, the challenge of, of trying to figure out whether a lab leak took place. There's one more thing about national security I wanted to ask you about as a person who's spent a lot of time uh, studying and writing about the sort of dark corners of um, security and research and things that the public is not supposed to know that the government is researching and developing weapons and things like that. Is this a time of conspiracy thinking that's somehow different from before? Or are we in a continuity and just paying more, more attention to it? And I ask you this as a person who's wrestling with this myself, are we just, are we just shining a m more light right now on something that's a feature of American life, which is not to trust experts and to always think there's some, something going on behind the scenes? Or have we reached a turning point here? I go back and forth on that myself. You know, mm -hmm. on one hand, um, there's one researcher who pointed out that, you know, if you look at just numbers, it's not clear that conspiracies are any more widespread than they ever were. You know, there was some of me, I mean, I don't remember what the statistic was, but the number of people who believed in some Kennedy assassination conspiracy was, you know, it was 60%, 70 I mean, I don't remember precisely what it was, but it was very high. And so the question is, what exactly... And also, what do we classify as a conspiracy theory? I'm sure there's a lot of people who would only classify right-wing things as a conspiracy theory. You know, QAnon, a conspiracy theory, probably is. Um, was the idea that Trump was a Manchurian candidate for the Russians, was that a conspiracy theory? It was wrong. I mean, he had other connections, but why is that not a conspiracy theory? Um, so I, I guess I'm very wary of how we classify conspiracy. I think what we're seeing is the ability for beliefs, whether right or wrong, to spread so quickly and un, unmediated, unmitigated through the internet without the gatekeepers, for better or for worse, of journalists or experts. So it's the spread of information and the ideas based on this information that is changing and allows things to spread very quickly. Um, but whether that's conspiracy theories or not, I think it's hard to say. I, that's, I think that's really helpful because it may very well that that way you sort of capture a continuity, but also point to something which is obviously quite different that somebody could hatch an idea or even just grab something from the news, which is uncertainty around science. And there's plenty of that. And they can kind of weaponize that and move that out into the information space by the afternoon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that, um, you know, QAnon didn't exist a few years ago. Um, and it's hard for me to tell, like, how much of that is it, it, these really people who believe in QAnon or believe in elements of what QAnon weaves in. Um, but, yeah, it's the, the, the rate of information spreading and who can spread it is is those changes are enormous. But they were coming for a while. They were coming from the start of the Internet. And I think we're just kind of seeing them flower. Just to remind folks, you're listening to COVID Calls and talking to Sharon Weinberger today. A few minutes left, I wanted to ask you about journalism in this time. Um, and a lot of things cover, but also a period of decline in local news. I saw an amazing story that said something like 60% of people throughout the pandemic had still gotten news about the pandemic from local news sources but local news sources continue to, to dry up. I mean, it's kind of a confusing 
period and changes in in media ownership and um, so I don't know sort it out for me a little bit. What have you seen in terms of um, big picture things or small bore things that are interesting to you in terms of journalism in the pandemic era? Yeah, the the local journalism thing it's it's hard, and, and part of it is probably my my own lack of personal experience with local media. I, I grew up in a town with a local newspaper that wasn't that great, and so I for me it's hard. I don't feel the loss of that that much. Um, but certainly, you know, based on colleagues who have worked in local news, it does seem to be a real thing. You know, they have to come up with an economic model that supports it. Have we, you know, what do we lose by not having that local news? I, I don't, I, I think it's, it's hard to oversimplify because fighting against that, would, would having local news have changed that people are getting their news from the internet or using mm. Facebook? I, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know that that would have been this complete counterweight against it. Um, I think the lack of the, the hurt of local news is exactly that, that there are things going on in local communities that we don't know about as a result of not having journalists cover them. I don't know that it would have impacted um, what we're seeing now. Now with social media and how people are, are consuming news and using news. Um, uh, so what have I seen most? I, I continue to think that journalism has a lot um, of soul searching to do um, about um, this divide in the United States. Um, uh, you know, how do we deal? I think most journalists, you know, let's put it this way. I don't think you're going to find many journalists uh, who were non-mask wearing, <laughs> COVID denying. And I'm not saying they should be, but how how do you cope with a journalism industry um, that reflects views that, that I believe in about what makes for credible journalism and good reporting, but at the same time is increasingly doesn't reflect a large segment of American society and how do we break through to them? How do we represent them? Um, If we're just writing for ourselves and for people who agree with us and think like us, are we achieving, you know, this greater mission that journalism has? Um, I, I, I don't know. I think, I don't know that anybody has the answer to that, but it's, it's what I think about. What about this turn to data-driven journalism? And I know it's the it's the well-funded media outlets that do the most with this, but not only. I mean, the ability to consume really complicated data visualizations as part of news features is something that I grew. I got used to it in five seconds. I mean, it's really enhanced um, the way that we can make sense of the world. But I, I mean, is that now a permanent thing too, or do we go away from that after COVID? From data visualization? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think it was, it, it clearly did prove very useful in the pandemic, but that's also, that's always had its ups and downs in journalism. Um, mm. uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's just something that we see these fads, what was it called? A computer assisted report. I mean, it, Clearly, there is a great need in journalism and the public desires to have access to information, to data and to ways to present that that are useful. I think we're going to see several more iterations of how that is used in journalism. I don't think we're we're near the end point. I think, you know, as you mentioned, COVID certainly, I think for the first time, uh, 
people could really see the use of it much more. I mean, this was sort of the ultimate example of where it could be useful and helpful and informative. Just one more quick question before we close out, which is, um, I love your writing and sort of wondering, you don't have to tip your hand too much, but what's, what's next? What are you working on? Um, so I, I have been toying around with some possible book ideas and I, I have less a, a idea of a specific thing than a general interest in the Pentagon and the biological sciences, not so much on, on biological warfare and on Cold War history. But, you know, if we look at um, what, what's always been interesting for me is how military funding of science shapes science, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, or sometimes it depends how you see it. You know, in the United States, the Cold War shaped the direction of physics. U.S. physics went in different directions than European physics went in. We were very applied. Um, so the the military has been in, has for a number of years, even decades, been involved in the funding of biological sciences. Well, what what does that do to the biological sciences? Um, I think that's that's the question that I'm most interested now for a possible book. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Please join me tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time when I talk to economist Micah Pollack. We'll take a big picture look at the economic impacts of the pandemic and then focus in on his area of research in local economics in the state of Indiana. And I want to thank my guest, Sharon Weinberger, for joining me today. Sharon, as usual, it's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow at 530.